I could take another hour of that. Let me pray for Kyle. Father, thank you for Kyle's willingness to speak this morning. I pray that you would put the words in his heart and on his lips and that you would help us to hear what we need to hear this morning from your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see everyone again. Hope everyone was able to stay dry. It's awesome to go out hiking and look at the countryside and see that all the ponds are filling back up and the the rivers are flowing and the, the creeks have water in them to just listen to the beauty of nature, the birds chirping as everything kind of begins to come back to life and liven up and the uh, the creation of God and nature declares his glory. Well, as I said, it's great to be with everyone today and it is, it's awesome to see this service begin with the children walking around with palm branches <clears throat> declaring Hosanna in the highest. It's a, it's an awesome visual for what we're going to be speaking about today. It's a, the triumphal entry. And we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 11. So if you want, go ahead and turn to Mark 11. But yes, it was good to see the children waving the, the palm branches, which was a sign of victory and shouting Hosanna in the highest as the people did. And as we turn to Mark 11, there's something that is kind of fun or interesting that you could do on your own or you could do with a family member or some friends if you wanted. Take an event that happened in the life of Christ, such as the triumphal entry, and sit down with a notebook and read the account of this event in all four Gospels and make a note of what is different. What did each man observe? What did they leave out? What was important to them? What did they say that was distinct? And when you do that, you'll gain an understanding of what is going on, what they were trying to emphasize, and you can also piece together the entire story. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to start in Mark, but we're going to reference the other Gospels, some of the prophecies, and try to piece together the story of what was happening. And the other way we're going to be doing that is we're going to look at three different areas. We're going to look at the prophecies that were being fulfilled, what was happening in the moment Jesus entered, and what the triumphal entry means to us now as believers. But first we'll start by reading Mark 11. We'll start in verses 1, and we'll go through verse 11. Mark 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. 
Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. Now, when you read that, there's kind of a, an anticlimactic ending, right? He just kind of walks into the temple and looks around and leaves. Now, we know that part of what happens in these events, when you look through the timeline, is that Jesus does cleanse the temple again, but that happens the next day. On the day of the triumphal entry, this day is mostly focused on Jesus entering, being declared king. Now, some of the prophecies that speak on this that the people should have been aware of at this time, uh, the main one is Zechariah 9.9. We hear this one referenced all the time, right? The prophet Zechariah is speaking to the children of Israel, and he says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the full, full of a donkey. And so, obviously, a, a king entering into a city, whatever he was riding on, would be very important, and it would tell the people of the city what his intentions were. If he was on a horse, especially a white horse, it would be possibly a time of war or a time of great intensity between two peoples. And, you know, the David entered in on a mule, which was a great and mighty beast. But to enter in on a donkey displayed the image of a beast of burden. It was a symbol of peace. It was telling people that the king was coming in peace. But the donkey also played another role because in ancient cultures, once a steed was born and it was meant for the king, only the king could ride it. So the fact that this had never been ridden before, and then Jesus sits on it and is declared king by the people, shows that this was meant for him. And it is another way to declare that he is the king. Now, in researching some of the prophecies that were being fulfilled, I, I came across a theologian that many of you have probably heard of. His name is R.C. Sproul. This man is very knowledgeable, and he is incredible to listen to. I love listening to R.C. And one of the prophecies he talks about is actually in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 10. And if you have ever read the book of Ezekiel, it is intense, it is wild, and there is a lot in there to, to process at times. But in chapter 10, he tells the people that he has a vision and he sees the glory of God leaving the temple and exiting Jerusalem. He sees the glory of God leaving the temple and exiting Jerusalem. And now here we are, and the author of Hebrews chapter 1-3 calls Christ the radiance of the glory of God. So now the glory of God is once again entering Jerusalem and is going straight into the temple to cleanse it and bring it back to what it should be. But another prophecy that he talks about goes all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament. We're going to look at that together briefly. If you would, please turn with me to Genesis 49. Genesis 49, the patriarchal blessing. Now what this is, is this is Jacob or Israel coming to the end of his life. And he is speaking to his sons and He's giving them different blessings and telling them what will happen with their clans in the future. Now, obviously, the, the first three sons of his, because of their sin, he could not give the patriarchal blessing to. So he gives it to Judah. So this is his son, Judah, that he's speaking to. Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. 
Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone. He couches, he lies as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments with wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. Now notice that as he's going through here and he's talking to Judah, he's declaring that there is royalty in Judah. And from this point forward, that is also why Jesus is called the Messiah that is coming is called the Lion of Judah, because it says here that he is the lion's whelp. But also in verse 10, it states that the scepter or the display of royalty shall not leave him and that the donkey will band himself with the choice vine. So it is deeply rooted in the subconscious of the Jewish people that when the Messiah is coming, they should be on the lookout for what is happening. They should be on the lookout for royalty entering on the back of a donkey. But then there's something else going on in in chapter 49 here, and it's kind of unique because what is Jacob? What is Jacob's name at this point in his life? At this point in his life, God had named Jacob Israel. So Israel is declaring that royalty will come through the line of Judah with a donkey. And at the time it happens, Israel misses it. So Israel declares it and Israel misses it when the time comes. But what is going on in this moment, in this this present moment as he enters, because there's something very, very pivotal in the life of Christ that is happening right now. This is the first time in Christ's ministry, in Christ's life, where he allows himself to be publicly praised. He doesn't admonish anyone for calling him king. This is the first time that this happens. This is the main thing to take away from the triumphal entry. So let's kind of look back at at some of what was happening during Christ's life when he would silence people. Now, the first place we'll look is the the unclean spirits or the demons. I know that's kind of a weird place to look to begin when you're looking at something. But in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 through 28, Jesus is healing people and he's taking demons out of people. And when he does this in verse 24, one of the demons states, Leave us alone, Jesus the Nazarene. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And immediately Jesus tells him silence and silences him and removes him from the man. And in Luke 4.41, Jesus is again taking demons out of men. And one of the demons cries out, you are the son of God. And immediately Jesus silences him again. So the unclean spirits were not allowed to speak who he was. Well, what about the people that Jesus would heal? Were they allowed to speak who he was? Well, when you look at some of the various miracles, like the one that happened in Luke 8, in Luke chapter 8, you'll read the story of a synagogue official whose daughter was sick. And the father came to Jesus to have his daughter healed. And by the time they had made it back to the house, the daughter had died. Now, oftentimes we think that 
The only person outside of himself that Jesus rose from the dead was Lazarus. But that is not so. The synagogue official's daughter was also raised back. It says that he put her spirit back in her. But in the very last verse of that chapter, you'll read this when Jesus is addressing her parents. But he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Tell no one what had happened. And in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, the people bring a deaf man to Christ that also had difficulty speaking. And Jesus spit in the ground and rubbed it on the man, and eventually the man was healed. And in verse 36, before the man departs, it states that, And he gave them orders not to tell anyone. So again, not to tell anyone. Well, what about the disciples? Well, when you read through the Gospels, you also see that they were told the same thing. In chapter 16 of Matthew, you see Jesus and Peter having this conversation with each other. And it's this real intimate conversation. You can tell the love that is happening between them. And Christ asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter declares, thou art the Christ. Thou art the Christ. And then Christ begins talking to him again until verse 20. It says, then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. So once again, he tells people not to say who I am. And so you sit and I've always read this and kind of wondered, like, why is this happening? Why does he constantly not allow himself to be declared? Well, then there's another unique circumstance when you look in the Gospel of John, chapter four, and you read about the Samaritan woman at the well. Now, Samaritans were were half Jewish and half Gentile. And he's talking to this woman. And in verse 25 of chapter four, she states, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And immediately Jesus answers her and says, I who speak to you am he. Now, why is it that when he is in the presence of Jews, he is constantly silencing who he is? But when he is around this woman that is part Gentile and his disciples are not around, he will just say, I am he. What is that? Now, one thing that I've found is very helpful with me when I'm studying the word. If you ever come across anything that you don't understand or that seems odd, always try to find some type of a Jewish source. Rather, it is a a Christian minister like Tim Mackey that has a Ph.D. in Jewish studies or uh, some Messianic Jews that are Christians like one for Israel that constantly go through the Old Testament and show you how it points to Christ. Always try to see if there is something in the culture that is making this happen, because there was. And if you want to read about it, one of the websites I found that explain this is called SharperIron.org. And it's a theologian named Ed Kasich. And the name of the article is called A Jewish Roots Perspective on Palm Sunday. A Jewish Roots Perspective on Palm Sunday. And there's a section in there called The Messianic Claim. And he explains what was going on in the time of Christ. There was a rabbinical tradition that the people were being taught of that Jesus would have been very aware of. And what it was, was this. If the Messiah comes among us, We will be able to see by his works that it is him. But if he ever declares himself, 
He is a fraud and he is immediately guilty of blasphemy. So all these times you see Jesus doing these works and silencing all these people in the presence of Jews, it is because they are to witness his power. They are to witness for themselves who he is. He is not to express it to them. And he was very aware of that. And you can even see that the chief priests are aware of that because at multiple times Jesus will be doing something and the priests will be talking about or the, the Pharisees and Sadducees about how they need to get rid of him, but they know they can't because the people will be against them. And it is because the people were seeing this. They were seeing who he was. But this is where Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, becomes very unique. Because in this one moment, Jesus Christ is a complete 180. He turns around on that completely. And you can see it from the very beginning of the account whenever he tells the disciples to go and get the donkey. What is the response that they're supposed to give? You tell them that the Lord has need of this. So now the disciples that he said, don't tell who I am, he now gives permission to say who he is. And he is now also declaring himself who he is. You tell them that the Lord needs this. And then when he is on the donkey, he is consciously fulfilling the prophecy in the Old Testament, the one from Zechariah that we had read earlier. And as he comes in for the first time, people are praising him. They are singing openly of uh, declaring the, the prophecies that were speaking about him. And he is not stopping anyone. He is allowing this to happen. He's not admonishing or stopping anyone. And then the next day, he goes into the temple and he cleanses it. And he begins teaching and healing <clears throat> and displaying his authority. And in this moment, it's almost as if Jesus is squaring up with the chief priests, if you will. And he's looking them in the eye and he's saying, you have been watching me for years and you know who I am. And now he is embracing it. And the chief priests, they look back at him and they say, gotcha. All the years they've been watching him and all the moments they've wanted to end him. And it is within a matter of days of Jesus Christ allowing himself to be declared king openly that they arrest him, they beat him, and they murder him. Within days, this happens. And it is because he finally gave them the window they needed. He finally allowed himself to be declared king. And the chief priest knew it, and the chief priest jumped on it. But what does this mean for us now? When we look at the story of the triumphal entry, what exactly is it that we need to be pulling out of it? Well, there's many things to pull out of it, but... One of them that I think we need to be honest with ourselves and we need to face is the fact that we are the people. We are the crowd. And sometimes as Christians, it almost seems like we get this, this sense that we need to look at things like this, like the crowd that praised him and then turned on him. And we need to talk about how horrible it is and the fact that we can't understand how that would happen. But the truth is, from the time of Cain to the time of David to the chief priest, to us, sin has always been on the heart of man. Defiance has always been on our heart. And we can understand exactly why these people did what they did. Because when Christ came through and they declared him as king, 
and he went into the temple instead of conquering Rome. He did not meet their expectations in that moment. He fell short of the expectations of the people. And does that not happen to us sometimes? Sometimes we'll, we'll want a job or we'll pray about our health or a loved one or a family member and we'll come to him and we'll commune with him and we'll praise him and we'll lay our palms down and the event happens and it doesn't meet the expectations like we had and we pull them back. And sometimes we may even get mad or defiant and say, you know what, give me Barabbas and I'll do it on my own. Our hearts are the hearts of these people. But just as Jesus responded to them and to the disciples in this moment, so he also responds to us when we have moments. He comes to those who doubt and say, look at my hands, look at my feet, feel my side, know that I did this for you. To those of us that sometimes deny him, he comes to us and say, those of you who denied me out of fear, or out of frustration, or whatever. I forgive you, and I love you. You are still mine. You are still my sheep. And to those of us that offer of our first fruits of our time and our money, and we come to him and praise, and we get frustrated, and we pull the palms back, he comes to us and says, I still love you. You are still mine. And I forgive you. Walk with me. And the reason why he does this is because he is our Passover lamb. Death glides over all of us and we have life eternal because Jesus Christ was the sacrifice that redeemed all of us who put our trust in him. Because when the triumphal entry is happening, as Jesus Christ is coming through the streets of Jerusalem, there is a very, very, very specific timeline that is happening and that is getting followed to a T. Now last week Dwayne talked a little bit about Passover and some of the prophecies and the month of Nisan. And the fact that the month of Nisan is very important because on the Jewish calendar that is the month that the Passover is celebrated in. And that is what the crowds of people were in Jerusalem for at this time was to celebrate the Passover. But there's specific days within the month in which things must happen. And this is coming from a, a Christian apologist named William Lane Craig, if any of you have ever heard of him. Uh, he's written many papers on this and also done some lectures. Now, on the 10th of Nisan, that was when the sacrificial lambs would be selected. So the men, the head of the household, they would go to the temple, and there would be all these pins of lambs that the priests had declared pure enough to be sacrificed. And they would go and they would pick these lambs and they would take them back to their household. And that would be what was sacrificed for the sins of their family. And on the 14th of Nisan, of Nisan that was when these sacrificial lambs would be slain. But there was also more than the slaying of the lambs. Because when you read how to do a Passover sacrifice in the book of Deuteronomy, there's a line in there where it states that after the sacrifice... Then the rest of the flesh of the lamb must be burned or eaten because darkness cannot touch the flesh. Darkness cannot touch the flesh of the sacrificial lamb. Now, when you go through and you look at the timeline of what was going on at this point, on the 10th of Nisan, when the men were picking out the lamb for the sacrifice, the 10th of Nisan is when Jesus Christ was on the donkey riding into town. 
And on the 14th of Nisan, when the men were sacrificing, were taking their lambs and they were sacrificing them for the sins of their family. The 14th of Nisan is the same day when Jesus Christ was crucified. And at the end of the day, before darkness touched his flesh, Joseph of Arimathea came and took him down and put him into his own tomb so that darkness did not touch the flesh of the lamb that was sacrificed. Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice for us. And it's interesting when you look at this because the chief priest would have been at the temple and they would have been making sure that all these lambs were being sacrificed and that Passover was going smoothly. They never even considered the fact that when they took Jesus Christ and handed him over to the Romans, they were making a sacrifice of a spotless lamb for the people to be forgiven of their sins. And it wasn't even registering with them what they had done. Now, as you continue to read through the different gospel accounts, you'll see that Jesus Christ was crucified at 9 a.m. And on the sixth hour of his crucifixion, he died six hours after 9 a.m., is 3 p.m. Now, according to the rabbinical tradition of Passover, you cannot sacrifice your lamb until 3 p.m. So at the same exact time, Jesus Christ cried out, it is finished and gives up his spirit. The knives were coming down to sacrifice the sacrificial lambs. And all of that is happening together and the veil splits. All of this is happening in unison. And the disciples and the early Christians, they understood what was happening and what this meant. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking to the church at Corinth. And he's talking to them. And in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul states, Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are, fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. We are forgiven of our sins, and death no longer has its hold on us. And everything from here on out, everything from the triumphal entry forward, the cleansing of the temple, the Last Supper, the betrayal of Judas, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the disciples going out and spreading the word of the Apostle Paul, the the word of the Lord being gathered, shared among brethren throughout the years, all the way up until the change in our life that Jesus Christ has made and the change in our neighbors and the fact that we can even gather in a church and be together with brothers. Everything that we have from Christ started from the triumphal entry moving forward. Everything that we are blessed from Christ and his crucifixion, it all began on the day when Jesus Christ was openly declared king. Let's pray. Christ, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for everything you've given us. We pray that as we go through this week, you continue to help us to focus on you, to prepare our hearts for celebrating Easter, to take a moment to just reflect on your word and reflect on the sacrifice and reflect on the forgiveness and the love that you give us. I pray, Lord, that you renew our spirits. I pray that you continue to encourage us. And I pray that you guide us in the week ahead. Amen.